Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where people tell me the five things from their life that they would choose to preserve in a time capsule. They pick four things that they love, but they also pick one thing that they'd rather forget, something they want to bury in the ground and never have to think of again. My guest in this episode is the actor Sarah Crow, who is, strangely, still called the Philadelphia Girl, after a series of ads she made with her friend and comedy partner, Anne Bryson. I can't remember what they were advertising. Anyway, Sarah is a brilliant comic actor and has appeared in numerous films and television programmes over the years, including Four Weddings and a Funeral, Carry On Columbus, The Steel and Round Island with a Fridge, as well as Hot Metal, Midsummer Murders, Skins, Harry Enfield's television programme, Green Green Grass, EastEnders, Sometime Never, Joe Brown Through the Cake Hole, Haggard and Going the Distance. On stage, she won an Olivier Award for Best Supporting Actress, a Variety Club Best Actress Award and a London Critics Circle Theatre Award, all for her performance in Private Lives in the West End. And she was nominated for an Olivier Award for Best Comedy Performance for Hay Fever. She's appeared in loads of plays in London and around the country, such as Twelfth Night, The Constant Wife, The Lady in the Van, The Entertainer with Shane Ritchie, Acorn Antiques the Musical and Alan Akebourne's Absurd Person's singular. Sarah is the voice of Queen Thistle, and also Mrs. Witch, in the children's cartoon series Ben and Holly's Little Kingdom. Lovely. I spoke to Sarah over the internet in her digs in Derby, where she was on tour in a production of Sheila's Island. So, here are the five things Sarah Crow would like to put in her time capsule. How is your play going and what is it? It's called Sheila's Island by Tim Firth. 
And it was originally written as Neville's Island for four men. And he's、uh, yes. adapted it for four women.、Um, it's a comedy about a group of business executives who get shipwrecked on a team building weekend in the Lake District. <laughs> and it's very funny. It's very funny. This has been postponed three times. This is now fourth time lucky because this was scheduled for 2020. Wow. But is that actually happening? <laughs> It must be a good one. Yeah. It must be a good one or likely to be profitable. Y- yes, exactly. Maybe. <laughs> We all said, look, come on, we've got to do it this year. Otherwise, we'll all be too old to play these parts. <laughs> It's like nearly three <laughs> years later. <laughs> What are all those retired people doing in it? <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're going to talk about five things from your life, Sarah, that you want to put into a time capsule. Yes. Four things you love and one you want to get rid of forever. Okay, lovely. So, what do you want to put in there? The first thing I'm going to put in is、um, my meat safe. Now, I'm sort of doing this chronologically. So, when I was a baby and toddler,、mm. my mum and dad lived in Curacao in、uh, the tropics, and it was very hot. And I've always been、um, quite an escapologist as a child. I used to get out of things and run away and swing on door handles. and... I could get out of my cot. So when they took my big sister swimming, which happened every day because of the heat,、mm. they used to put me in a meat safe <laughs>、um, because it was cool、mm. and it had mesh sides and it was difficult to get out of. But I, I managed to get out of that as well eventually. I figured out how to unclip it. And so they used to put books on the top. <laughs> But I thought I'd keep that because. It comes from a time of life that I don't actually remember in my head.、Mm. I only remember it from photographs. So it's, like, it's almost like a, a made up time. It doesn't really exist for me except in those photographs. Yes. But it's part of my life that I was sort of almost not there for, although <laughs> I was. And、um, I just think it's hilarious that they put me in a meat safe. <laughs> and when I was about 14, I decided I'd become vegetarian, probably because I was put as a baby in a meat safe. <laughs> Surrounded constantly by slabs of meat. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. So that's my first thing. It's a funny thing to choose something where your parents <laughs> imprisoned you, basically, <laughs> as a child. Well, it's not a bad thing. It's kind of, it would look like a cot. It's mesh at the side, so, so you can see out. Oh, right, yeah. It's just you're completely contained in like a cool box.、Mm. So, not necessarily just to keep the meat cool, but actually to keep flies off it and things like that. Yes, exactly, yes. Or、yeah. to stop the baby escaping. <laughs> So, what were your parents doing in the tropics?、Uh, my dad worked for Shell and、um, he got posted all over the world and eventually to London. And my sisters had this very exotic childhood where they were living all over the world, but I only lived in one hot country. And again, as I say, I don't remember it, I only remember it from photos. So, you were the younger one? I was the younger one. Yes. So there are all these stories of iguanas in the roof and, and things like that, but I, I don't remember it. I'm、no. always really interested when people say they remember either being born or being a little child. I have no recollection at all except these photographs, which make up an identity of someone that was there, but it's not actually a real memory. Do you know what I mean? No. Do you think that for most people they're false memories? That in fact they're reminded、yeah. of something or they're, they're persuaded that they remember it because they can picture it? Yes. And all they're picturing is. It's a photo. Yes, I think that is the same for most people. Yeah, I have those moments in my childhood that in my head I can sort of take myself there, 
But I know I was mm. too young to actually remember it. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'd love to remember it. Yes. So that I could really transport myself back. But um, my dad has kept meticulous photo albums, mm. beautifully chron- chronologicalized. <laughs> So, you know, all dated. It's about 15 volumes and dated and everything. And I can go into those and and look, but I don't actually, I just don't remember. And I I wish I did because it must have been so great to grow up in the tropics and swim with sharks. It must mm. have been extraordinary, I think. Yes. But by the time I was old enough to remember, we got to Guildford. (laughs) So, I mean, one extreme to another, I feel I've really missed out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the wonderfully glamorous Guildford. The yeah. wonderfully glam Guildford. Yeah. <laughs> I do wonder with my own grandchildren. I've got grandchildren now. The oldest one is nine, nearly ten. Mm. And I talk to them about things that we did together that, of course, I can remember in extraordinary detail mm. because they were magical for me. And I know for them at the time they were magical. Mm. And it seems almost unfair, doesn't it, that you forget those things almost up until you were about four or five. Yes, you start remembering things once you go to school. Yes, I know. It's sad, isn't it? Because there's some wonderful things that happen before that age mm. and people that may, you know, not be in your life anymore. Yes. They become representations. Yes, I am very aware that I need to start, certainly with the youngest, from now is when mm. I start building his memories of me. Yes. So that as he gets older and I go, he'll look back and remember happy times with me, I hope. Yes. Because I'm aware also that he won't remember... The bits before. No, I know. It's funny, isn't it? Must be to do with brain development, why memory really kicks in around the age of five or maybe four, four, five, six. Mm. Why not before that? Is it also traumatising before that? (laughs) Where am I? What's this planet I'm on? Who are these people shoving things in my mouth? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's because you can't really make sense of them. So you can't, in a way, place them anywhere that you can access. Yeah, that's a good point. You haven't got the language to... The cognizance to say, that's a bed, that's a chair, that's my dog, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But clearly those memories do stick with people, even though they can't remember them. Because, in fact, if, for <laughs> example, you being locked in a in a meat safe had been traumatic for you, <laughs> it might well have affected you for the rest of your life. Yes, yes. Or it could be the opposite. Sometimes trauma, you can't remember. You blanket. Yes. It's so complicated, isn't it? It's crazy, the brain. Mm. I'm very good at blanking things out of my life that I didn't enjoy. Yes, me too. Which is quite a benefit, I think, at times. Yes, it's a skill. But people often say to me, oh, they were horrible, weren't they? And I go, were they? I think that's a good way to be. I can do that as well. Mm. I don't remember being in Derby, for example. (laughs) And I think perhaps the last time I was in Derby, I wasn't having a very good experience. So I I just don't remember it. I mean, it was a while ago as well. Mm. And when you're on tour... You're all over the place, so one town, you know, they all blend and and it's one long Thursday. Isn't it just? (laughs) Until the end. I mean, I wonder if, in fact, that might be a a way to approach life. (laughs) I wonder. Because it seems that I do do it to an extent. But I remember my mother, (laughs) whenever she got annoyed with my aunt, she would say... She never paid me for those curtains. And we worked out that this was something that had happened, I think, during the Second World War. <laughs> so she <laughs> held on to that memory right the way through her life. Yeah, it was giving her the fire. <laughs> <laughs> the fire. Yeah, what a strange world that is as well, actually, that working for Shell. Yeah, moving country. Was he promoting Shell or sort of setting up companies? No, he was a chemical engineer. So he was actually on the science side of things. 
He's a very, very clever man, my dad. He's a scholarship boy mm. from Melbourne. His dad worked in a piano factory. And my dad has this sort of amazing brain that can figure out how to get uranium out of the ground and things like that and, you know, break flight down to its component parts and explain how it happens. And he's just really mm. good at maths. And so in the war, he was in the Australian Air Force and he had a scholarship to Melbourne University. And the Air Force said, actually, for the war effort, we're going to let you go and do your scholarship because we think it will serve the country better. So off he went and then got this great job in chemicals and planning and and then travelled all over the world, moving country. And my mum was learning different, you know, she had to learn Dutch to live in Curaçao and, and Spanish, you know. So. I don't know where Curaçao is. I yeah. think of it as a drink. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it might well be. It's um, off the coast of Venezuela. Right. The top of South America. See, what a shame you don't remember that. I know, I know. Where do you look? Guildford, Venezuela. Mm. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to put your meat safe into the time capsule for you as your first item. And hopefully yes. the next time you look at it, you'll suddenly go... Oh, my God, I remember it all. <laughs> I hope so. Lovely. OK, so what's your second item, Sarah? OK, my second item. So I'm now thinking about being a bigger child. And we were living in outside Guildford in Surrey, which is absolutely beautiful, even though it isn't Venezuela. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my mum's Scottish. And we also, part of my childhood was spent up in Scotland. And um, I went cross-eyed as a toddler and I had to have two operations on my eyes because mm. my astigmatism was so severe. I had it done once and they pinged back again. Oh, no. <laughs> and all my toddler pictures, I've got dark glasses on and a Mac because my sisters used to dress me up as a private eye to try and detract from, you know, the, the mess my eyes were in, probably. Oh. But as a result of these eye operations, I developed a terrible fear of the dark. And the second item I'm going to keep because it sort of defines my childhood or, or nighttime childhood, mm. was something that we used to call the cushions. And the cushions were actually a three pieces of cushioning that folded out into a bed. And I used to take the cushions in with my sisters, in with my mum, and I used to literally sleep in different rooms every night and take mm. my little bed with me because I couldn't be on my own at night. Uh, oh, I just couldn't do it. And I, and I think it was something to do with the, the eyesight difficulties. Yeah, yeah. So the cushions, because the cushions came to represent, you know, security. And it's OK, you can go to sleep now. No, there's no bogeyman going to get you. And, mm. and, and, and I must admit, they were all very tolerant because nobody ever got a night to themselves. They always <laughs> had a little visitor. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it actually got quite embarrassing because I, I did that right up until I was about 16. So, you know, while I was at school, I was like, yeah, you know, I'm so cool. I'm a punk. <laughs> I'm still going in with my mum and dad at night on the cushions, you know, <laughs> my little secret. It's very difficult to lose those things, though, isn't it? Mm. I, I'm not sure if some people ever lose them. I bet if you had them now, yeah. you'd still want to sleep on them. Yes, yeah, and they're pretty comfortable, except because there was a gap between the top bit, which was like a fold-down chair, and then it flipped open and you could have half a bed, and then you added this cube on the bottom but I used to wake up with my bum on the floor because the foot cube would sort of slip away during the <laughs> night. So I probably got a circular back as a result. Yes. <laughs> and they were very 70s as well. They, the, the fabric design was like whiskey labels and it had a PVC bottom. So I thought, you know, this is super cool, but just don't tell any of my friends I'm still going in with my mum and dad. 
creeping in every night. Yes. I don't remember ever having something like that, that what mm. you'd call a comfort blanket. Yes. But my brother-in-law had a thing that he called his tins. <laughs> oh, sweet. They were curtains that used to hang by his bed. Mm-hmm. And they were velvet, I think. And he would, at night, put them against his face. And the comfort of the velvet made him feel safe. And eventually, he wouldn't go to sleep. He would say, tins, my tins. Mm -hmm. And he kept those with him for years and years and years, I think. I wonder if he's still got them. Oh, I wonder. My mother-in-law, she took them down eventually and gave them to him. And then Mm -hmm. they became so sort of ragged that she gradually Mm -hmm. cut bits out of them. And he ended up with just a piece about the size of a handkerchief that he used to just put on his face at night. Oh, gosh, how sweet. Mm. And my grandson has a little toy called Buddy, which was his first little toy when he was given him when he was a baby. And he's never been without it. Yes. If I were to take something to the repair shop, that's what I'd take. That would be it. Little yeah. buddy. My sister had something similar. She, she was, I think she was a, like a gastroenteritis or something. She'd, she'd been very ill and very sick. And um, she had sick Ted because she, she was sick on Uh-oh. she was sick on her teddy. <laughs> and then it became sick Ted. And that, and that went right through until her sort of mid-20s. Oh, brilliant. Sick Ted, who was a colour of puke with a pink cardigan. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously a very reassuring presence <laughs> in life. So how old were you, Sarah, when you had to go into hospital and have these operations? I was two and three, so really, really little. Mm. And um, I don't think in those days, because I'm 108 now, uh, I don't think they gave you pre-med, so I was just taken in and and they, they used to they take your eyeballs out of your head and put them on your cheeks. I mean, obviously I wasn't awake for that part, but no. then they recall some muscles and then they pop them back in. Wow. So no wonder I'm scared of the dark. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, my God, how frightening. Did they explain that to you? No, again, again, that that's something I found that out mm. later. I didn't know at the time. I didn't really know what was going on at the time, except I was being dressed up as a private detective <laughs> for, for some reason. What have I done to deserve it? What is this yellow Macintosh you keep putting me in? <laughs> and, of course, as a little child, you wouldn't see anything wrong at all in being cross-eyed. No, my baby photos, I'm completely boss-eyed. It's um poor little thing, No. <laughs> well, I suppose, again, it's interesting, isn't it, that you've not come out of that traumatised by it, apart from clearly being terrified of the dark. Yeah, no, I, I, I haven't, but I still... Um, when I first left home, I left home when I was 17, it was very much a question of, you know, that Joan Armour trading song, mm-hmm. every light is on but all the rooms are empty except one. <laughs> when I lived on my own for the first time, I'd, I had all the lights on and the radio because I was I was still frightened and I couldn't sort of rationally explain why. No. It was just like a subliminal thing. And, and so I was a bit traumatised from that, although it didn't seem to be related to that. At that point, it was just like, oh, if I look out of the window for long enough, will I see a face staring uh, back at me? You know, yes. Because I'd seen a lot of horror films by then, of course. <laughs> you knew what could happen. <laughs> yes. But now um, I'm down to just a nightlight, um, like a, one of those little plug-ins. I don't like that suffocating pitch black that you can get, although you need it to sleep. Yes. I mm. wonder if that's because you would think that would be to do with your eyeballs. Mm. In a way, you sort of go, well, is that to do with them taking your eyeballs out? Can't yeah. be that. I think it must be related to something that happened in the hospital that you can't particularly remember, I wonder. Mm, yes, must be. You know, that actually being in a hospital and them turning the lights out and you feeling afraid yes. and, and alone. Yes, 
or maybe it is related to eyesight because I don't know what happens. No. Does it go dark? And I, I don't know. Well, almost certainly. I would imagine they would put some sort of binding over your eyes for a while afterwards. Yes, I mean, a, a patch. Yeah. So if it's both eyes, yes. then you would have had to spend, I don't know, how long? Days? Maybe a week without seeing anything. Yes. So you can understand how that would linger without you specifically remembering why you were worried about it. Yes, exactly. Mm. Again, you you sort of blank out the, the really, really traumatising bit, but you're left with the fear of something. Which shows itself in that. Mm. I mean, it's like all those fears. As a rational person, you say, this doesn't make sense. I know this doesn't make sense. The door is locked. Mm. Nobody's outside the window. I know that. Yeah, I mean, darkness is such a liar, isn't it? You can A chair with a bag on it can be like a witch hiding in the corner in the dark, can't it? Often. But with just a little plug-in from Mother Care, that does the trick. Because then you can just see the, the shapes don't morph into anything imagined. No. They're just your Marks and Sparks bag. No, but we've all had that experience <laughs> yeah. in a place that is very familiar to us. Often our own bedroom, mm. where you can get out of bed and then mm. out of the corner of your eye, you'll see a dressing gown hanging up in a place that you wouldn't normally hang it up. Yes, it's a person. Yeah. Dracula. Dracula's come at last. <laughs> yes. I knew he would. It was only a matter of time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yes, then um, the cushions. The cushions. It's a lovely name. It immediately makes you feel comfortable. It does. It's very much like the tins. It's something beginning with the Mm. that means security. Everyone knew what the cushions were. And eventually I think the cushions got an upholstery cover that joined the whole thing together so that the foot bit didn't slide (laughs) so I didn't wake up with my bum on the floor. (laughs) And then think that was white. But the real sort of die of nostalgia factor of the cushions is the print beneath that was whiskey labels. Mm. Just really old-fashioned whiskey labels and the PVC bottom, which we all thought was so incredibly cool. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Okay, well, then we should put the cushions into your time capsule's item number two. The cushions. Brilliant. Okay, so we've got a meat safe and the cushions. So so what's next? Okay, it's time to add some ads to this podcast because it's ad time. Yeah, we'll be back very soon. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to My Time Capsule with the lovely Sarah Crow. When we left her, she was just about to tell us what the third thing is that she'd like to preserve in her time capsule. So let's find out, shall we? That it seems churlish not to. Well, uh, just a caveat here. When uh, I was first trying to think of the, the items that I would keep, I was thinking, well, if I could have anything, I would keep my four dogs that I've had over my life. But they're not objects, so I know that's not allowed. But Well, uh, in a way, sort of anything is allowed, really, if it's what you want. I wouldn't want to objectify them, though. It'd be a very short interview as well, because it'd just be my four dogs, that's it, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> so my third thing... Um, This is to do with when I started work and um, sort of finding that path Mm. in life. And it was a costume fitting that I had at Academy Costumes quite a while ago now. And I was in the fitting room being fitted for something in a play. I don't even remember which production it was. That sounds so... I I don't remember what production it was. (laughs) Darling, one of the many, many Darling, there's so, so many. And we should see my trunk of (laughs) programme. But up on the wall, there were two sketches by the late Carl Toms, a brilliant designer. And there was one of a cucumber mint sailor suit and then this beautiful blue evening gown. And I almost did a double take. I thought... (gasps) Those are my costumes from Private Lives, which was my first job. Oh, wow. They're still in Academy costumes. If ever they go missing, you'll know who's taken them. I would really like to have those in my time capsule because not only were they absolutely beautiful designs, but that was the start of my career. Yes. And um, so it was quite a special time. And those are lovely memories. Who was in that production of Private Lives with you? That was Joan Collins, Keith Baxter and mm. the late Edward Duke. Did you know Edward Duke? No, I didn't. Duke? No. He did that fabulous show about Bertie Wooster, a one-man show. Fabulous. So when was that, that production of Private Lives? 1990. Pre-electricity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 1990. But how exciting to be suddenly in this room and to look up and to see your past, as it were. Yes. And it's strange, isn't it? You don't forget those costumes. You, you go through the, the ritual, almost, of preparing yourself for the play by putting those costumes on. Yes, absolutely. Mm. And there were such beautiful costumes as well, you know. No expense spared, just fabulous fabrics and made to measure. The shoes were made to measure. All just really special. Mm. And um, the drawings are really beautiful. I love those kind of pencil sketches with paint in the middle. They're lovely. Amazing, aren't they? And they had little pencil notes in the corner and colour palettes and just like an alternative hat. (laughs) <laughs> maybe you know, everything's so glamorous because you know normally I'm a a Wellington boot bag lady kind of look so to get glammed up is just such a treat yes it's a brilliant play as well isn't it it is it's, it's so funny I've only ever seen it I've never been in it but I would love to have done it oh you would have been great well, you could still play, Elliot. There's a production of it going around now, yes. It's all happening at the moment, isn't it? You can do anything at any age. Absolutely. <laughs> Which means that maybe I can go back and visit some of my favourite performances. That would be the thing to do, I think. Yes. Do you know what I'd love to play? There was a terrible production some years ago of Charlie's Aunt with Danny LaRue as Fancourt Beverly, <laughs> and that's the part I'd like to play again. <laughs> to see if I was any better at it, do you know what I mean? Well, what's the name of the character, Fancourt? Fancourt Babbley. 
What a great name. He's the fellow who dresses up as Charlie's aunt. <laughs> that sounds like a fun part to play. It really was. It's my favourite of all the ones I've done. Yes. It's the one I'd like to revisit. I think we can do it as mature. We mustn't be ageist about these things. Thank you very much. I shan't be. <laughs> no. <laughs> I shall no. tell that to the producer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you mention Danny LaRue, it always reminds me of a little story. Because actually on this tour of Sheila's Island, I always sort of ask the theatres ahead of time, is it OK if I bring my dog? And um, Roger, the company manager, was ringing round and checking mm. for me if I could bring the dog. And Because sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. But I do remember that there's an apocryphal story that goes with Danny LaRue, which is he always had his little dog with him. Mm. And even if they said no, he'd turn up at the stage door and say, no dog, no Danny. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> but doesn't work so well with Sarah. No dog, no Sarah. You've got to have that double letter, haven't you? No dog, no Danny. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. He lived for a while in Tunbridge Wells, Danny LaRue. Did he? Towards the end of his career. And I used to see him quite often in the town centre. He would just sit on a seat mm. at the end of the shopping precinct mm-hmm. with his dog. And mm-hmm. he, he was, to me, an extraordinarily famous face. But mm-hmm. I used to watch quite often from a distance and just think, Look at all those people walking past him. They haven't the faintest idea who he is. Yeah, interesting. Which is a good lesson in life. Yes. You you can be that famous. Then again, he wasn't in full dress (laughs) mode. No. (laughs) So I would always make a point of walking past him and saying, good morning, Sir Danny. (laughs) (laughs) And he would then, from this little Mm. old man, he would turn into the showbiz person that he was inside, I think. He would go, oh, morning, 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 darling. (laughs) (laughs) His heightened persona. (laughs) Yes. Have you come across any other costumes you've ever had? I've never found my own costume again. Mm. But I did once, in fact, the very first play that I did, I had to wear long leather boots. (laughs) And I looked inside and they had RSC Peter O'Toole written in them. (laughs) Really? Wow, so you've got Peter O'Toole's boots. I know. I couldn't believe we had the same size feet. (laughs) (laughs) They should be in a glass case, surely. Yes, So how lovely to revisit the great success of Private Lives through the costume and see it once again. Yes, it was was a lovely reminder. So I'm going to put that beautiful dress and... uh, The cucumber sailor suit. It's a sort of cucumber sailor suit with a straw hat. Oh, I can picture it now. (laughs) Yes, that's going into the time capsule as well. Right, yeah. we've got some gorgeous things in there. So we could put them all in the meat safe. Put them in the meat safe. And keep them cool. Keep the flies off. <laughs> so one more thing, one more thing to keep. Yes. Well, this is hard because it's the last thing. And, you know, so there's a few things that I was trying to choose between. Mm. Which were? Well, well, a Citroen 2CV dolly, which was like driving a deck chair. It was such a beautiful car. It really was like driving a deck chair. Really? It, it had the gear stick on the dashboard, you know, high up. Mm. So I was thinking about that. But actually, I think in the end it would have to be my laptop because a laptop now is kind of like having your brain outside your body, isn't it? It's just, <laughs> it does everything. And I am a technophobe. I don't do anything particularly whizzy on it at all. I've always written as well, but mm. I, st- I really got into my writing and I was still using a notepad and pen. Up until about 10 years ago, when my husband taught me how to use a laptop. And once I got going, I thought, this is amazing because you can cut and paste and you can word search and you don't need Tipex. And so it's completely revolutionised my life. And you can also listen to any music you want to. 
find information, research. And so I would say it would have to be my laptop. Yes. Even though I don't, I really don't know how to use it apart from those things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that actually technology is to everybody an individual thing mm. that you take from it what you need. Yes. And then every now and again you see somebody else do something on it and think, oh, that looks good. Mm, how do you do that? That looks good. Yes. <laughs> and they say, what, make a phone call on this thing? <laughs> you say, no, I only use mine to look at the internet. Yeah. I know people who don't make phone calls. Everything is done through text messages or, in fact, nowadays, yes. sending an audio message. So you have the telephone mm-hmm. conversation by recording your side of it and sending it to someone, mm. and then they record theirs and send it. You think, well, just phone each other. I know. I prefer the phone, actually. And in the pandemic, I wanted to hang on to phone calls and, vo- you know, just voice to voice because it was the way it was before and the world was going crazy and suddenly we were all Zooming and Microsoft teaming and <laughs> I don't like change. No, <laughs> no, I want to stow- I want the telephone attached to the table in the hall. I want to sit on a chair. I want to wait in for a call. Uh, you know, do you remember doing that? Yes. A telephone seat, I always think, is a, yes. <laughs> an extraordinary thing. Telephone seat. We've actually got a telephone table which has got a little seat in it and then a shelf for the phone and then a little shelf underneath for the yellow pages. <laughs> <laughs> and then underneath us, Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> of course, yes. <laughs> but if we need to know anything from that, we get the butler to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right, you do just cherry-pick the bits of technology that you want to use. Mm. And I think word as a as a uh, it's just such an amazing thing all the things you can do in it because before that I was tipex and having to read through pages and pages to find a bit I wanted to change yes or reference Mm. one of the things that you have to constantly do is make lists of things of you know this is where this I said this person was born this is where yes his aunt lives this is the name of his neighbor yes so you don't later on give them the wrong name the wrong name or the wrong place or the wrong birthday Mm. doing a timeline is just brain fog isn't it yes but then with a laptop as you say you can ask it to do it for you yes i know it's am- i know people who don't even type they just dictate you can talk and it types for you mm. i like typing though i like it's quite satisfying to pressing the buttons and hearing the clicking yeah i think also it makes you concentrate doesn't it it does i know some writers have not moved on to laptops and not moved on to writing on they still write in longhand Mm-hmm. because they say the process of writing in longhand concentrates their mind on the words. Yes. But I can see that you can do the same thing with typing. I think you still have to, I mean, still use a notepad on the side because I know you can use post-its on a laptop or stickies or whatever mm. they're called, but it's not the same as having a ring binder and you need both. When you're working on a big project, I find it's all boxes and arrows and post-it notes and extra notepads, and isn't it? I mean, mm. but being able to see the words on the screen rather than, you, you know, my schoolgirl handwriting <laughs> yes. in a jotter, um, <laughs> I don't know, it makes it seem more professional <laughs> somehow. <laughs> <laughs> so do you still find time, even on tour, to sit down and write? No, I don't know how I did it before with my novel, I don't know how I did that because I was working on that while I was on tour. Mm. I get too tired now, so I have to do that when I'm not working on a play. And also total absorption mode is so much more fun than two hours here or one hour there. Mm. I mean, I I would very much like to be able to go into the shed or the office or, or wherever and come out six hours later with 
a thing, you know, or a several hundred words or, you know. Yes. It's a retreat, is it? It's like a sort of sanctuary, that kind of writing. Yes, I'm always amazed at people who can do a hundred things at once. Mm, mm-hmm. It's much more satisfying to be really focused on one thing. I'm always amazed by people who can work on more than one project at a time. I think, how do you do that? Yeah. Butterfly mind. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> well, at least you've got your laptop to help you. That's the important thing. Yes. And we shall preserve it for you in the time capsule. Thank you. I'll make sure that we get updates. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so that's all the things you'd like to keep because you want to keep them. Mm-hmm. So what's the thing you'd like to put in there so you can forget about it? Well, this was a no no hesitation. My grey air boot and my crutches. Ah. It was 2006. I'm giving you all my medical traumas. <laughs> but um, it was 2016 and I was doing Cinderella at the Lyric in Hammersmith. And I was so pleased because I was playing the wicked stepmother. Mm. And normally I'd get typecast as the fairy. And I was like, I don't want to be the fairy. <laughs> I don't want to be the baddie. I used to be a punk, you know. Yeah, yeah, come on, I've got some cred. <laughs> but I was playing the wicked stepmother, so I was so happy to be doing it. And uh, during the matinee on the press night, there were two shows on the press night. During the matinee, I tore my Achilles tendon. Oh, uh. There was a most almighty bang. It sounds like someone's been shot. I thought I'd been clattered by a bit of scenery, but no. And then I instantly couldn't walk. So I, I had to finish the show with a stick, sort of hopping. I did the evening show in a wheelchair because there was no understudy. And then I left the production. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was in a grey air boot and on crutches for nine months oh. after that because it takes longer than a bone. And I had to sleep in my air boot to keep everything straight. Have you ever done anything like that? Have you ever? I've completely ignored an injury like that, yes. Mm. And have therefore suffered from it since. Ah. I was playing a game of tennis and I stepped back mm-hmm. to hit a ball and then felt this excruciating pain and there was this loud bang. Yes. And I turned to the person I was playing doubles with and went, what the hell did you do that for? And they went, what? And then I realised, of course, they were standing 10 yards from me and uh, yes. and hadn't done anything. And it's excruciating pain. It's excruciating. And it was touch and go for a while. They didn't know whether I was going to need surgery or not because it was 60% torn. Mm. And that sounds really bad, but actually that meant it was 40% attached. <laughs> so it did heal on its own. It just took a very long time. And so this air boot, because I walk miles. I mean, I I walk miles every day with the dog. And I love walking. I get really restless if I don't get my walks. I mean, it's me that needs walking, not not the dog. <laughs> so to be immobilised like that was really, I found it so, so hard. And particularly sleeping in this thing, it was like a ball and chain around the leg. Mm. And then when it eventually came off, I had to learn to walk again because your muscle just withers. It was like a little sort of bird leg that was left. And I was so unconfident because once something like that happens, you think, oh, I might break. <laughs> I break. Mm. I'm still far more risk averse now than I was. But it's to do with moving very quickly and then stopping suddenly. That often makes it happen because um, footballers do it and tennis players because it's just too much for the tendon. Mm. Just recently, I went and had MRI scans mm. on exactly mm. that. On your tendon, yeah. And they said you sort of mostly tore it some time ago and it's full of scar tissue. That's why you keep yes. suffering from it. Because the scar tissue, I had ultrasound on my scar tissue because ultrasound smooths out the scar tissue so it's not bumpy. Right. 
this may be the route I'm going down. Yes. So finally, finally, after all these years, I've gone, do you know what? <laughs> I still suffer from this thing. I think I might get somebody to do something about it rather than assuming that, like Superman, I will just heal perfectly. Yeah, but I guess at 35, you think, oh, it'd be fine. fine. I'll bounce back. Yeah. <laughs> well, I always have. And I think maybe I should have relied on the expertise of doctors. <laughs> Yes. I think I got off lightly, actually, because the sound of the surgery for that, I wouldn't like that. So close to the surface of the skin and very squeamish. I think they'd probably put you to sleep, (laughs) rather like they did when they took your eyes out. (laughs) They'd taken my eyes out, they'd taken my heels out. What next? This has been an absolute (laughs) horror story. (laughs) And I'm terribly squeamish. I've been sitting here clenching my buttocks the entire way through. Yes, that horrible boot and crutches. We will bury that deep in the ground and you'll never have to worry about it again. You can walk and walk and walk with the dogs. Thank you so much. Uh, That horrible municipal grey colour as well. It's just all kind of sort of hospitally. You think, no, why can't you make them pink? This just will not match my sailor suit. It will not do. Cucumber green, please, for me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Sarah, how lovely. Thank you so much for telling me the things you want to put into a time capsule. It's been really lovely to see you and lovely to talk to you. And you. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Sarah Crow. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more, then please do subscribe to this podcast where you'll get all new episodes and can go back and listen to the episodes we've released so far. There's quite a lot of them. We'd really appreciate it if you'd rate the podcast and maybe even review it. And if you want to get in touch or see what we're up to, then the best way is to follow either me or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Or maybe all three, if you've nothing better to do with your day. The theme tune was written and performed by Pass the Peas Music and is available for free on Spotify. This was a cast-off production for Acast, but it's available on all podcast providers. It was produced by John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'll see you soon, I hope. Oh, you may notice that I don't have a cold, which is good. I only point that out because I did have a cold and read somewhere that if you rub coffee all over your body, it gets rid of it. Yeah, I know, sounds absurd, but I tried it and I am living proof that it works. Sadly, I can never go back to Starbucks. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 